Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. The climate space is like a rapid hardware iteration. We're on version six or seven of our pilot plants at this point over a four-year period. So we're trying to quickly iterate on the hardware and get the lessons learned back in, which is one reason why we sent a pilot plant to Kansas in a before it was ready state is because we learned a tremendous amount by shipping it out, getting our teams out to support it, getting people on the ground to support it, getting infrastructure in place. And so now when we go to deploy our next unit, we'll be prepared. But if we had spent five years developing this prototype and the first time we got it into the field was, you know, when we thought everything would work great, you know, us in San Francisco, we learned a lot about winter and tornadoes and things that are like <laughs> totally normal in the Midwest, but just don't happen in San Francisco that often. Sean, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So to start, why don't we dive right in and get listeners up to speed on what you've been working on at Charm over the last few years? Yeah. So uh, we started Charm a couple of years ago with the mission of converting biomass into hydrogen. We were hoping to be competitive basically in the hydrogen fuel cell market. Most hydrogen today is made through the upgrading of natural gas. And so we were trying to find a way to make hydrogen from a, a biomass source. turns out that production of hydrogen is difficult for the end use case because it needs to be extremely pure. So what we did at Charm was change our process to go from biomass to bio oil and then bio oil to hydrogen at the source of load or syngas. And in splitting our process, we sort of invented a new way for removing carbon from the atmosphere through the injection of bio oil into deep underground formations. Tons more I want to talk about, about kind of, I'll call it a pivot that you all made to, to producing bio oil. But how long, just for perspective for people, how long did kind of this process or this realization phase of working on hydrogen, trying to figure out the kinks in that, and then ultimately kind of approaching more of a carbon removal challenge? How long was the timescale for that shift? We spent about two years working on biomass to hydrogen. We built two pilot plants that fed in initially a grass hybrid, and then the second pilot plant ran on almond shells. And the goal of those were to sort of prove out the process. And with any startup, you're constantly trying to fill in gaps within your economic model. And what those pilot plants really forced us to do is a deep dive on the logistics of transport at the larger scale. And that's where the economies of that process didn't quite align. So two years on that, then we decided to split the process in sort of December of 2019. And then pandemic hit while we were in mid-design phase of our new plant. And that sort of gave us a chance to step back and really think through our process. And that's what led to the discovery of using bio oil, not for its energy content, but instead for its carbon content. Got it. Yeah. And specifically sequestering that carbon content. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that process that you've now been at least pretty publicly focused on for a few years of converting biomass into bio oil and, and injecting it back underground. What are some more of the intricacies in that process that myself or listeners wouldn't, wouldn't know about or might find interesting? Uh, we talk about it a lot as backwards oil drilling. It's kind of <laughs> the idea that as Charm's business model, um, you know, 200 years ago, oil was extracted from these deep rock formations where, you know, plants had decomposed over millennia to form oil. And so when that oil was brought to the surface and burned, it enters the giant 
you know, many, many gigaton flywheel of the carbon cycle as plants grow, they absorb CO2 out of the atmosphere, they decay, they re-release that CO2. And so what Charm's doing is using plants to capture CO2 and then converting it into oil and pumping it underground. It's basically the same for similar to the process that generated oil in the first place, which is doing it much quicker and then closing the carbon loop that started with that oil extraction. So there's a lot of nuances to the technology. What Charm uses specifically is fast pyrolysis. So take biomass, we grind it down into one to three millimeter particles, and we feed it into a reactor that's held at about 550 degrees Celsius. And in less than five seconds, that particle of biomass is heated from ambient temperature up to 550 C where it decomposes into solid char, bio-oil vapor, and non-condensable gases being hydrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, and carbon dioxide. And then our process basically strips out each of those components. So we have uh, cyclones that mechanically separate the char from the oil vapor and the syngas. We have a quench reactor that removes the oil. And then finally, we have combustors which decompose the syngas into just CO2 and water vapor. But in the long term, that plant is run off of the energy of that syngas. So that's what our sort of R&D targets are. There's enough energy in the biomass to run the whole process. So Right. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is with some of the other kind of what one might normally consider waste products, but are there ways to valorize like all of those different products, the char and the other gases as well? It sounds like there is. Yeah, absolutely. We are targeting operations on the field. That's sort of what separates Charm from some other players in the bio-oil space, is that we anticipate operating initially right now on the field edge, and then in the long term, we want to operate actually on the field itself. And so picking up the biomass in the windrow, processing it into the bio-oil, and then the char product contains fly ash and biochar, two things that are currently sought in agricultural areas for soil amendment. And all Charm wants to do is remove carbon atoms. So we want to leave all the micronutrients on the field. And ideally, what we can do is have that process as it's processing the biomass, leaving that what to us is a waste product, but to the farmer is a value stream in the field. Yeah. And I mean, biochar has a lot of really positive carbon sequestration benefits as well, in addition to being great for soil. So I assume, you know, I'm sure all that kind of like factors into your LCA, but potentially complicates. I mean, you have to look at multiple different products as far as when you start like thinking about how permanent the sequestration is. So maybe we can start talking about that a little bit. We personally um, avoid soil carbon. Actually, where Charm started way back when was the idea of producing char on farms. It's where our name comes from. Take char and farm and squish it together, you get charm. But the dream there, we weren't quite comfortable with the state of the permanence of biochar. It's not to say that it isn't permanent. There's tons of amazing work being done on this field, in this field. But we just didn't feel like the field wasn't advanced enough for us at the time to set that as our primary focus. So uh, even now we're looking at the char as just a soil additive for the farmers, but not necessarily getting into discussions of permanence as seeing as though our our mission is permanent sequestration on 10,000 plus year timescales. So even if soil carbon is stable on 350 year timescales, it still kind of confuses our value proposition, I guess. 
Understood. So if I hear you correctly, when you think about kind of the carbon removal and sequestration side of the business, you really focus on everything that's going into and being sequestered in the bio oil. And perhaps there's additional carbon removal that's happening that you're not measuring by not focusing on the biochar, for instance. Yeah, we take a very conservative approach to our carbon removal product. The actual decay of biomass on the field results in many subproducts, including methane. However, our model for our carbon removal sales assumes pure CO2 from that process. So there are other areas that potentially we are having a larger impact, but we're not. We're taking a conservative approach to try to say like every every atom of carbon that we promise has been removed, we baseline against a fairly conservative case. Got it. Yeah, that's laudable. And just to break it down for folks listening in, I think kind of what Sean's communicating is that when they think about how much carbon they're actually removing from the atmosphere, they focus on what's kind of most perhaps measurable and also most permanent in the bio oil that they're injecting back underground, whereas there's a bunch of other potential benefit to things that they're doing, such as preventing biomass from converting or decomposing on farms, which can release methane into the atmosphere and additional carbon that they might be trapping in kind of some of the char products that he was describing as well. So I've heard a lot of really good stuff so far. Uh, For one, I like the injecting kind of oil back underground, directly reversing climate change and some of the things that we've been practicing for hundreds of years to, to precipitate it. And I think the story about, you know, both thinking about hydrogen to start and biochar is kind of more where Charm's genesis came from, but being open to pivoting to new opportunities, kind of as long as they continue to align with driving climate impact. I mean, that's something that I've definitely observed at some of the other companies that I've enjoyed talking to. And it kind of speaks to the way that the space is maturing so rapidly. Like three years ago, people were not talking about carbon removal nearly as much as they are now. So being able to hitch your wagon to a star in a sense and being flexible to do that. Certainly interesting. Yeah, it's been wonderful to be supported by our investors in that direction. When we were initially forming Charm, the mission is still to reduce global CO2 levels. Um, We're a mission-oriented company. And what makes that easier for us than maybe some of our competitors in the space is sometimes when people get into the carbon removal industry, they're coming in with either a something that they've worked on for their PhD thesis or if they have a they've licensed a technology from a national lab or some similar like very narrow case and we need people to do that I don't mean to discredit like the enormous work that goes into those types of programs I think one thing that gives us a, an advantage potentially on on the whole versus on any of those specific projects is that we're able to put together this incredible team with the mission of removing carbon. And we're doing that technology agnostic. So we have research and development arms in different carbon removal strategies that aren't necessarily our primary pathway, but they are hedges against the issues we may run into in our carbon removal pathway. So we've constantly been exploring the trade space, putting a ton of effort into research and development to really be looking at this from the angle of what is the most economical and rapidly scaling way to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And so right now our approach is the bio-oil sequestration, but in five years' time, it may be a different technology that we've developed in-house. Got it. Yeah. And so you opened the door to this one, but what are some of those challenges that you might run into with the uh, with the bio-oil approach? Absolutely. Uh, we have first-of-kind pilot plant. We're trying to put a effectively a chemical refinery on wheels, which is a challenge. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
we ran into a lot of issues with our development and or our prototype in the field this year. It did everything we wanted it to do. We were excited about testing all the different pieces of technology. That being said, its uptime didn't meet our optimistic targets or our pessimistic targets, but that is sort of to be expected with a first-of-kind plant. But it did prove the technology end-to-end. So we are rolling out our own wells, we're rolling out our own pyrolyzers, we're rolling out different revisions of our pilot plants, basically, and constantly iterating on these. So I think some of the challenges there are almost entirely engineering-based. Like we have challenges with gas vapor separation to make sure we're not getting solids into our condensers. We have issues with our gas liquid separation to make sure we're not getting aerosols into our burners. We have issues with our downstream energy generation, which is taking that syngas that's currently being combusted and feeding that into a generator to effectively run the process. So if anyone's listening and feels like that's your particular bailiwick, we would love to chat more, you know, obviously, but uh, we're constantly trying to hire experts and find people who are able to advance either our current state of technology or, you know, know a couple of the mistakes that we've made and can catch them sooner. So, but one thing that we are excited about at Charm is that there is no like scientific breakthrough. We need to make this technology work. This is all just an engineering and scaling challenge. So the technology exists at scale. We're trying to make it work on a much smaller mobile plant effectively. And so these challenges are surmountable. It's just a question of, can we make them small enough to fit within this small form factor? So, And just to make sure that I like to kind of understand a little bit more about all of the reasons that are driving you wanting to do it in a mobile and small fashion, because you mentioned that if it already exists at scale, like what's in the way of just going directly to that scale? The ambitions of charm are in the gigatons. And so we have a value here at Charm, which is uh, gigatons or bust. If we're not able to find a pathway of using a certain technology or a certain separation methodology or a certain cleanup technology to that gigaton scale, then we are um, not going to implement it into our system. And so what that means for the decision to do a mobile plant versus a brick and mortar facility is that if you were to build, let's say, a 50 ton per day dry ton per day biomass input plant, you build a facility over five or 10 years, you get it set up, and then all of a sudden the cost of biomass becomes this more or less Gaussian distribution around your plant for the cost that the farmers are willing to sell you that agricultural waste product. So instead of having a plant where you've gone through and figured out the market research to say like, okay, well, this is the cost of agricultural waste in this area. As soon as you build that plant, then you can't move to where the prices are uh, reasonable. And then the farmers who are nearby to that plant know that you're willing to pay $150 per ton effectively if there's biomass 200 miles away versus theirs, which is right next to your plant. So the economics don't quite work because you can't walk away from a deal effectively. And so it's actually killed a number of projects in the past. So what Charm is trying to do is avoid those pitfalls by having a mobile plant where we can actually follow biomass to where it is the lowest costs. Further than that, 
the majority of the cost of our negative emissions at scale are in the cost of biomass. So even though we're buying a waste product, what farmers do right now is they will sell you that waste product and then they'll purchase a dollar for dollar replacement of fertilizer usually to just replace the nutrients in the field. What we hope to do with operating on the field is actually pick up the biomass in the windrow, which means you don't have to pay for labor to bale and move it to a field edge and transport it to a facility. So that drastically reduces the cost of that biomass. And then if we're leaving a biochar and a fly ash into the field as well, then that reduces the cost of the fertilizer replacement that would be required. And I should say on a note of regenerative agriculture, which sort of comes up when we talk about taking a waste product off the field, Charm only targets removing about 50% of the agricultural waste. And so that then doesn't impact like soil erosion or soil carbon negatively. So, and that's without the amendment of the the biochar. So hopefully in our field trials, we can find out that the biochar is a sufficient replacement for that um, agricultural waste. Um, But definitely keeping an eye on that. Got it. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I like how it ties into some of the economic considerations of how you keep the get the cost of the carbon removal lower over time, too. And thanks for being transparent earlier about, you know, the very real engineering challenges that are going into all this. There's a lot of hype in carbon removal, but also a lot of very real challenges to get this industry from a relatively small scale to, as you said, ideally a gigaton scale at a number of different companies in the next 20 or 30 years. I also wanted to ask before we kind of move on from perhaps the process and the technology side, what types of biomass lend themselves best to your process? Or is it pretty agnostic of different types of biomass? There are benefits of different types of biomass. The woody biomass is really the best because you can get almost 70% yield on a dry basis. So you're, if you take in a, a ton of dry biomass, you can get about 700 kilograms of bio oil out. And then the higher your ash content of your feedstock, the lower your liquid yield. So for things like uh, sugarcane bagasse or wheat straw or corn stover, they all have a fairly high ash content. And so we are looking at like 40 to 50% yield off of that. So the best that you could get is like a wood chip effectively. And so we're looking at sort of forest thinning operations in fire prone areas. There's some work with Cal Fire and other groups that are trying to figure out how to clear some of that debris so it doesn't end up in these you know, enormous fires. So Charm is looking at how we can fit into that model. But our primary target over the next five to 10 years is the agricultural waste in the Midwest, namely the uh, corn stover and wheat straw, which there's gigatons of annually in the US. So, and shifting a little bit now to kind of the carbon markets and the demand side of the conversation, you know, for folks like yourself, I'm sure, and, and even for myself, who's paid a little bit of attention, it's been a massive year for carbon removal. There's been a lot of fundraising from venture capital firms that want to invest in companies like yours. There's been a lot of commitments from groups of companies that have banded together and say, we're going to provide catalytic capital in the form of kind of advanced purchases of future carbon credit sales. What's been most exciting to you and as someone who's spent, you know, much longer than I in the space, like perhaps what surprised you the most? I think the the advanced market commitments are huge. Over the last 20 years, there's been a number of promising technologies that have unfortunately become sidelined due to this this breakdown in the financial model where 
you would end up generating a pilot plant, saying this pilot plant works, it's going to work at scale, we just need 200 million, effectively, to build the next size up. And it's a famous thing in the in the chemical engineering space to end up in this gap where you need like about $200 million to build a the next size up facility and projects just die there all the time. What has changed in this space, I believe, is that the advanced market commitments show that there is a pathway to continual purchases over the next 10 years. I think Frontier is like looking at those type of purchases as like offtakes versus versus sales because you can't go to an institutional investor or to a, a debt financer and say that, look at all of these contracts I have this year. And then they, you have no sales going forward after that. And so what the advanced market commitments do is they say, over the next 10 years, we have an offtake every year for this guaranteed volume. And then you can actually raise debt financing on a facility to say, there's a guaranteed offtake from this plant. And that was the thing that's always been missing in the industry. So that's been a major shift. I think the amount of money flowing into the carbon removal space is exciting. And I think it's great to get a bunch of people into the space and create a ton of opportunities for really interesting projects. There's potentially going to be some, I would say, chaos in that space because <laughs> potentially there's like too much money versus program deliverables. And I can see some turbulence in the in the market in the distance for maybe a bunch of people who raised a ton of capital but didn't start building or, or weren't working through uh, like a hardware iteration cycle. So I think that is one thing that I would pitch to anyone who's considering building uh, hardware in the space is just build a prototype as fast as possible because you're going to learn a tremendous amount from that versus working on maybe just a narrow space. You call it like a paper satellite, spending all this time building a perfect model of what your paper satellite will be. And then (laughs) a lot of times that's just sort of where it ends. So my co-founder Kelly and I sort of bring to, I think the climate space is like a rapid hardware iteration. We're on version six or seven of our pilot plants at this point over uh, four-year period. So we're trying to quickly iterate on the hardware and get the lessons learned back in, which is one reason why we sent a pilot plant to Kansas in a before-it-was-ready state is because we learned a tremendous amount by shipping it out, getting our teams out to support it, getting people on the ground to support it, getting infrastructure in place. And so now when we go to deploy our next unit, we'll be prepared. But if we had spent five years developing this prototype and the first time we got it into the field was you know, when we thought everything would work great. You know, us in San Francisco, we learned a lot about winter and tornadoes <laughs> and things that are like totally normal in the Midwest, but just don't happen in San Francisco that often. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, can't overstate the importance of really being judicious and also ambitious about that hardware iteration. But the space is so supply constrained at current that if all the capital pouring it into it now doesn't translate into at least some meaningful uptick in those numbers over the next call it eight years, then I could see it being kind of one of those situations where you have this failed experiment that who knows what the reasoning behind it is, but investors point at it as like, this is why I'm not going to undertake this type of investment again. Yeah. I mean, the other side of that too, which is kind of wild. Uh, I heard Peter mention this the other day to someone came by who was interested in investing in charm. And Peter just pointed out that the industry itself has to grow at 65% year over year to hit the IPCC 
10 gigatons by 2050 annually. So it's not really a question of whether or not like this, you want our company or another company to be successful. Like it has to grow at this rate. Otherwise we're kind of all in a, in a world of hurt. So this is the, it's the interesting other side of the funding angle. And it's definitely why I think some investors are really pouring capital into the space is that whether or not you want it to be successful, like it has to be. So (laughs) it's fascinating. But that's one of the reasons why we're getting so many great engineers into the program is they see the big picture that this is. Saul Griffith talks about it as a wartime effort. Like You have to get everybody on this. And we're seeing people flow in from every industry imaginable and giving up careers to move out to the Bay Area to join carbon startups. So, Yeah, and for context for folks, the IPCC has, in a variety of their climate modeling, has kind of put out a hopeful assumption that the world will be able to remove 10 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere annually by 2050, which would be a massive scale up in the industry's ability. Because yeah, without that, a lot of that modeling starts to get harder. And it's a super high growth rate. I mean, I think photovoltaic cells for solar have been improving and compounding in terms of efficiency at like 30 or 40% for 20 years now or something like that, I think I remember. And so it's even higher than that, which would be astounding. And we can cross our fingers and get back to work. It's wild because um, the venture capital models like assume or demand 35% year-over-year growth for software is a good example of that. And so... Like that's what they expect from a VC-based software company. And I think that's why a lot of VCs are diving into this space because they realize that the industry needs to grow at this rate. And so there will be winners in that space and there will be losers. But if you can invest in the right organization, there's potential for this to be as big as the oil and gas industry is currently. Yeah. And hopefully ways in which to leverage some of the expertise of folks that currently work in oil and gas and all of their infrastructure to do stuff similar to what y'all are doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's the wild thing about what Charm is working on is that we have this amazing confluence of the entire built world is designed around moving oil from distributed sources to points of load. We create value stream off of a waste product for farmers. Uh, We can effectively double a farmer's profit by buying their uh, agricultural waste. The oil and gas industry has a glut of abandoned oil and gas wells. And so we can basically create a profit stream for closing them. And then along with that, there's a number of people in the oil and gas workforce who are specialized in oil drilling and oil transport and oil well operations, which we can give careers to in a transition economy without having to fully cross-train them into a a new field. I'm glad that that perspective came up because it's something that I kind of wonder about for a bunch of different technologies, even if it's, you know, just building more infrastructure. Those companies are great at building all types of different infrastructure. But yeah, in the case of Charm, it's very directly suited to the type of work that you do. So it's even more applicable in that case. And so between the improving the supply in the market and ramping that up to 10 gigatons, which you all are working very hard on with all the hardware iteration, and also on the other side, you've got positive tailwinds on the demand side. Kind of between that sits this idea of, measuring and verifying and reporting on carbon removal. And you all made kind of a big move recently that I'm sure was in the works for a while to publish your own kind of take at a methodology, or I think in your case, you called it a protocol 
if you will. What were all of the processes that went into developing that? And what are some of the key takeaways that people should know from that process? Yeah, I think it's something that we think a lot about internally at Charm is we have a technology that is well suited for sort of verification because we can put a NIST traceable piece of measurement equipment in line. We can measure the exact number of carbon atoms in our ton of bio oil. We can measure exactly how much of it goes down a well. So we have these versus other technologies where it might be like a harder or involve some sort of softer modeling over the the lifetime of the program. Right. Like the soil carbon example you gave earlier, a lot of folks in that case do kind of more like process-based modeling. Yeah. And there are amazing groups in that space like Yardstick, which is working on developing like a in-field probe. And actually one of the co-founders of Yardstick was a a previous co-founder of Charm. And so it was something that we were always talking about at Charm. And then he went and started like a, a way to measure and verify this, which I thought was really great. So we know that this is going to be a thing to discuss with every customer. Um, Not every customer who comes to Charm has the panel of experts that Shopify or Microsoft or Stripe convened when they were reviewing our our offtakes. And so our carbon removal methodologies, which was wonderful. And every question that came up in there, we tried to publish to our are frequently asked questions, and we try to be very transparent about the challenges we're facing and in the development. So it's not just a, <laughs> it sounds like it's all green and everything is wonderful and amazing. <laughs> it's like, no, we are, we are working through a long laundry list of problems to get this to scale, which I think is important for other people to hear too, who are working through their own carbon removal programs. But the MRV process was a program that we intentionally weren't trying to develop in-house. We wanted to work with third parties to help us form what that would be and what the right questions are. And so we leaned on an organization called EcoEngineers and then reviewers like Carbon Direct and other experts in the field like Leo Friedman to really go through with a fine-tooth comb our process. And it should be noted too that we called it the proto-protocol so we were like, this is where we are. We're big about publishing what we call like 10% drafts internally at Charm and saying like, this is what we're thinking. This is where we're going and opening it up for feedback and seeing what we can do to both show our customers that we've delivered and how we're measuring that. And so each delivery that we've completed on our registry, you can actually click through and see the carbon accounting for that particular train of removals. And so it's different for every removal because the LCA is different for every pathway that we've developed internally. So, Got it. Interesting. So you not only have kind of a very robust protocol for the overall process, but you also differentiate it across different pathways. Does that take into account like different locations, different types of biomass, all that type of stuff? Yeah. The ability for Charm to scale rapidly was effectively leveraged on uh, our first injections were third-party procured bio oil and uh, third-party wells. And so each one of those had its own life cycle associated with it. And in some cases, there was replacement costs for that material. And so you'll see that in some of the registry items that we're offsetting a replacement in that carbon accounting, which is actually a major fraction of it. So some 50-ton deliveries are actually over 80 tons of material. And so there's a ton of accounting that we do. And behind the scenes, too, we have 
an enormous trove of documentation for every delivery that we've done. And so we're trying to figure out both how we roll that out in the future with more detail, as well as sort of keeping the trade secret parts of our process um, without like, you know, sharing everything. We're trying to figure out how we, how we eventually share everything without creating like chaos for ourselves in the short term. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, it's been cool to see, or, you know, certainly saw very warm reception the folks that follow carbon removal and are tapped into it when you publish the proto protocol. And it's cool to hear that we'll get additional iterations as the business grows. One final question I have on all the different kind of stakeholders in the space is like, what is the modal farmer who you approach? Like, what are what questions do they ask or, or what concerns do they have? Or is it really just like, a, oh, hey, you want to buy some of my biomass for this price point? Like, that sounds great. <laughs> Yeah, it is purely transactional. But I have to say the the farmers we worked with have all been curious. I mean, when you drop a prototype carbon removal technology in the middle of rural Kansas, everybody comes by, sees what you're working on. And (laughs) it was great because we would have people walk up who didn't necessarily like believe in climate science or didn't believe in that this was really a problem and just walking them around the machine and talking through like what we're doing, why we're doing it, why there's a giant team here trying to, you know, invest millions in this technology and this deployment. They would really, even though it was one or two people at a time, you're showing this is the scale of the problem. And I think farmers are particularly well tuned to climate. Uh, I don't think there's, and so I shouldn't say that this isn't the farmers. These are more like the equipment operators and people who are bringing by infrastructure to the site that we were talking through. But the farmers are interested in what the logistics are of the operations. I think they're curious about like how they get the biomass to us, how they, you know, the timelines of processing and getting materials back onto the field. I guess like the ideal shape of the farms that we're looking to operate with are people with curiosity who are interested in these research projects, it's extremely difficult to get a farmer to be the first one in a community to do anything. And so we're always looking for those on the bleeding edge who are interested in in trying like small scale experiments and processing like some small amount of biomass and trying the, the carbon additives. And so, but as soon as you get one farmer doing it, then everyone starts to see that their farm is operating at a a higher profit and their crops are growing more vigorously than, you know, the word spreads fast. And so I think as long as you can get that like anchor into a community, it tends to, yeah, it tends to be a a great thing. I love to get a little more perspective from folks like yourself that really go out in the field. It makes it a lot less abstract than thinking about like, oh, here's how kind of, as you said earlier, carbon removal works on paper. But, you know, it actually requires having to go into farms on in Kansas and convince people to give you biomass. It's no small feat. I mean, it was a huge learning curve. And I think that we published, a, we try to publish blog posts about some of the interesting things we've learned. And it's always a fraught conversation when we post about some of our biomass learnings because there's a ton of farmers who read the article and like, oh, I could have told you that (laughs) in two seconds. And it's just like, yeah, I know. And so we're looking at trying to find if you feel like you you know a lot more about biomass processing than we do, like we'd love to chat and invite you to come and join our little carbon removal team. So right on. Yeah, so to close it out, kind of rapid fire question time, I've got three questions. One is where is Charm in five years? Maybe you can talk about that in terms of scale or, or some other factor. 
What other climate technologies or carbon removal companies are you stoked about and enjoying following? And then you've done some of this in the call already, which is great, but you know, who else do you want to hear from? Or if you have calls to action for people to, to get in touch, can definitely make space for that. Definitely. Let's see the, uh, the first one. Where's Charm in five years? Charm intentionally doesn't take grant funding because our pathway may be different in two. And so by the time the grant funding cycle comes around, we're like, well, if we had taken out a DOE or a Department of Ag grant in 2018 to build a biomass to hydrogen system, then in 2020, when we were working on biomass to bio oil, we would have been, wouldn't have had access to that capital or we would have been forced to sort of work on that program, even though it wasn't aligned with Charm's objectives. So I think that where I hope Charm is in five years and where we're targeting is a suite of uh, hundreds of pyrolyzers in the field operating. That's a very ambitious goal. And I think just having a great team still filled with kind people. We work really hard on hiring for emotional intelligence and kindness. And we have just some of the best groups of people I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And I hope we can continue to maintain that. Other companies you're excited about? Um, you know, there was a company called Frost Methane. I think they changed their name. They were always my favorite carbon <laughs> removal technology because they were doing these giant umbrellas and lakes in the permafrost and were basically capturing bubbling methane in the lakes in a giant umbrella and then flaring it because nice. to destroy the methane. So I think there's a bunch of weird edge cases like that, <laughs> like the um, refrigerant destruction groups, I think are awesome. I feel like there are these weird arbitrages in the carbon removal space that if you can find things like that, where you're just like, I'm going to put a, an umbrella with a tiki torch on top of it in the middle of a lake in <laughs> northern Canada and sell carbon offsets from that. I think that is just, that is great because it's impactful and it's, and it's interesting and yeah, and it's inspiring because I think we have been to a couple of like the meetups in the area. I mean, they, not for years. And so I am a little bit behind on the state of, of the really cool ones that are going on right now. But I think that is just so cool. And I would love, I'd love to hear more about the weird little edge case things that people are working on. So I'm going to have to try and get in touch with those folks. That'd be a good, uh, yeah, a good yeah. future guest. <laughs> I do find that a lot of the really cool, or at least for me, a lot of the captivating stuff does run through methane because I say something like 25 or 30% of observable global warming is methane and still kind of get, you know, not to slander the conversation we just had for 45 minutes, but we still get sometimes what can occasionally be like a myopic focus on carbon. So what other folks do you want to want to hear from? Oh man, we're hiring electrical, we're hiring mechanical, we're hiring chemical, we're hiring process modelers, we are hiring across the board, hiring field operations engineers, we're hiring. The, like I said, we have to grow 65% year over year. We're likely opening offices in Denver as well. So we're expanding our locations so we can catch more of the people who are eager to work in climate, but don't necessarily want to live in the Bay Area, which I totally understand. And I think we are hiring out of every industry, we have people who are previously like full careers in oil and gas, full careers in aerospace. And I think that I would just say to anyone listening who is feeling like they're not sure how they would contribute in a carbon economy or in a climate space, there are every organization is out there hiring everything from 
you know, recruiters and office managers all the way up to every type of engineering specialty. So there's going to be more and more climate companies and hiring faster and faster. So if you are at all interested in moving into the climate space, I'd say, yeah, check out Charm, check out any number of the amazing groups that are that are forming right now. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, a good plug to close on. Thanks so much for, for joining, Sean. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to connect. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.